In John chapter 5, Jesus has just finished healing a lame man, and he did it on the Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. The thing you're not supposed to do. Really, the, <clears throat> the Jews were correct in honoring the Sabbath, as we saw a few weeks ago. And yet, they were incorrect in their implementation and how they, and how they honored the Sabbath. And so because Jesus healed this lame man and brought attention to it by telling the lame man to pick up his mat and carry it around with him, another big no-no, this caused the Jews to persecute him. And so in our passage this morning, we read Jesus' defense. And his first defense is one sentence in our passage. It's very short. And it does not do what a defense is supposed to do in our minds. Just one sentence, claiming that he's only doing the work that his father has continually done. The reason I say it doesn't do what a defense is supposed to do is because, of course, this doesn't ease the minds of the Jews, but rather it makes them even more angry because they see his defense as a claim to be equal with God the Father. They see it as a claim to be God on the part of Jesus. This is often the case with Jesus. He doesn't soften his stance when his stance makes people angry. And so he then continues to double down on his answer and make it abundantly clear what exactly he was claiming for himself. And of course the Jews were right. He is claiming to be God in our passage. He is claiming to be equal to, he's claiming to be one and the same as the Father. This claim has to stick with us. It's, of course, one of the big fights that the early church had, trying to figure out what exactly Jesus was. Was he a man or was he God? Was he, was he sort of a man? Was he sort of God? And as we saw in the creed that we recited together this morning, Jesus, of course, is fully God and fully man. And this is one of numerous places in the New Testament where we see that brought out. The importance of this is the difference between being a Christian and being a Muslim which is a big difference. It's the difference between being a Christian and a non-Christian. It's a big difference. Many people assume or claim that Jesus was a prophet, Jesus was a good man, Jesus was ultimately amazing, 
in many ways and many of the things that he did, but that really he was just another man. What we see in our passage this morning is that this is an impossible claim if the Bible is to be believed. Some of you have heard the question put, is Jesus a lunatic, or is he a liar, or is he Lord? And this is one of the places where you get to see his claims about himself. And his claims are astounding. So please stand for the reading of God's word. From John chapter 5, starting in verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
Wow. Jesus' claims are amazing. But there's some unexpected ones in here. Even if, I, even if, even if you know clearly Jesus is fully God and fully man, even if you've studied this and know this, some of the things in here stand out still as somewhat unexpected. In verse 19, when Jesus begins to give further explanation to his answer, he speaks of his own submission to the Father. The submission of God the Son to God the Father is central to his explanation. It's at the very beginning of his answer when he says, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So there's a sameness, a unity that we see in the relationship between God the Son and God the Father. Okay? There's this unity where he's saying, I only do and only can do what I see the Father do. And yet you also see at that same moment that submission of I will only do what the Father gives me to do. Now this is where our brains explode, right? This is where it's like, okay, now, uh, I can understand why the early church was having fights about this. Because in the early church, you've got people looking at this and saying, well, he submitted to the Father. He can't be the same as the Father if he submitted to the Father, right? He can't be fully God if he's limited in this way that he can only do what the Father gives him to do. If he can only do what he sees the Father already doing, Right? It's a hard problem, in other words. And the reason it's a hard problem isn't because the Scripture is unclear. The Scripture is perfectly clear in this passage and, and, and everywhere concerning who Jesus is. If you skip forward a few verses, you see something even stranger than Jesus only being able to do what he sees the Father doing. The stranger thing is that, verse 22, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So now we see this statement that 
the father has this limited role. He doesn't judge, only the son judges. So what's going on here? Well, like I said, what we're seeing first and foremost is we're seeing unity between the Father and the Son, in that that unity is central to his explanation, and it it undergirds it, and it flows through it from beginning to end. When you understand that God the Father and God the Son are perfectly united in themselves, in one spirit, with one another, okay, then it's not at all surprising for the Father to give all judgment over to the Son. Because why? Well, because he can fully trust and understand exactly what the Son is going to do in the judgment. Right? And and then the Son himself is saying, and I only do what I see him doing. What I know he's supposed to do. So the scripture is clear. The problem is our brains. And I I just want you to acknowledge that to yourself. I want you to say to yourself, I'm dumb. You, You have to say that when you read the Bible. You have to read something like this and say, this is too high for me. Some of you have walked into the wrong classes at school. You know, you walk into fourth year French and you've never taken any French. What? This is too high for me. I'm too dumb for this. Now, you, it's, it's, a different, it's a different level there because, you know, you may think, yeah, but I could learn French. And that's true. You could learn French. But you can't. You cannot grasp God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Three in one, except by faith. You can never make mental sense of this. Because his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And so when we begin to demand that the Bible conform itself to our ability to logically reason and put things into the proper places and say, well, this and this and this and this and this, and and then that's all logically coheres together. If you do that to the Bible and you do that to God, then you will inevitably be a heretic. This is what the early church struggled with. They kept trying to force God into a humanly understandable box. And you can't do it. 
All you can do is you can say, the Bible says this clearly and it's true. And the Bible says this clearly and it's true. And I believe both of those things even though I don't really understand how they can both be true. I don't understand how there can be three persons and one God and for them to be all fully God and all fully one. But I know that all of those things are true. Because we see it in the Word. And so when Jesus says, the Father is working even until now, and I am working, the Jews understood what he was saying. They understood it rightly, that that was a claim of divinity. That was making himself equal with God, and that was making himself God. And so when Jesus enters into his explanation, the first thing he does is he drives that that stake into the ground, that everything is going to be attached to, right? And that stake in the ground is the unity between the Father and the Son. Perfect unity and perfect submission on the part of the Son. So there are helpful things that we can learn from this. Aside from the fact that we've got to lower our under we've got to, we've got to lower our thoughts about ourselves and our own reasoning, and our own ability to logically figure everything out. Okay? So the first thing we got to learn is don't put yourself in, in the place of judging God. Instead, what are we to do? Instead, we are to seek to be united with him. Now, what does unity with God the Father look like? Well, we see perfect unity and in, a, in a way that we will never have because we will never be God like Jesus is. But we see the demonstration of perfect unity in Jesus Christ and his actions on earth as a man. So not only is he fully God, but he's fully man. It's a beautiful thing. In fact, this is given as a reason in verse 27 that Jesus has been given all judgment. It's because he is a man. And so as we read elsewhere in Hebrews that Our high priest is a high priest who can sympathize with us because he is a man. So here, we have a judge who has walked a mile in our shoes. 
Now, it's all, it's all very nice to think about a high priest who sympathizes with us. It's not as nice to think about a judge who has been through what we've been through and yet hasn't sinned. Is it? There's always the hope when you've got a, you know, when, when you've got a judge and you know you've done something wrong that maybe the judge will have sympathy on you, right? Whether the judge is your father, whether the judge is, you know, in the civil courts, speeding ticket, what have you. When somebody is placed over you and they're going to make a judgment about whether there's going to be punishment and what that punishment is going to be, you always have this, you always have this hope, please, 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 please be lenient. Please, 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 please be merciful, right? And so you, what do you do? You give, you give your excuses, right? You give the extenuating circumstances, the reasons why you not had to do it, but you were pushed. And don't we always have those extenuating circumstances when we're facing a judge? When dad says, why did you do that? You think, well, I better come up with a good reason. (laughs) Uh, Because Johnny kept hitting me. So you tied him up and put him in the closet? This seemed like a good idea to you because he was hitting you? Really? You guys think I'm joking. I mean, these are the things brothers do to each other, okay? <laughs> Let's be honest. So, was that a good idea? No, not a good idea. Extenuating circumstance doesn't cut it, right? And no extenuating circumstance ever cuts it. It's never a good enough reason, but you know you've really had it when your dad or the judge begins to tell you about the time that that happened to them and how they acted responsibly and didn't tie their brother up and put him in the closet. You're like, oh, no. He's been through it and did the right thing. I'm done for. And so when the Father places all judgment into the hands of the Son, because he is the Son of Man, It's not a happy thought, really. The only reason that that we get any joy from that is because we also know that he's our high priest and not just our judge. 
and that as our high priest, he also was a man and does sympathize with us. He knows our weakness. So Jesus, as a man, what did he do? He fully obeyed the Father. He fully obeyed. That's, that is where the unity in, their, in, in this passage comes from. He says, I only do what the Father has been doing until now and continues to do. That's what I do. I'm united with him. This is the call to us. We are to do God's will. To do God's will is to be as united to him as we can be. And you understand this when I say it negatively, more clearly. Okay? When, I, when I flip it on its head and I say, when you disobey God, you know you're no, you no longer have unity with him, don't you? You feel that break. You feel that break in the relationship. You feel the, you feel the, the, uh, the doubt that you can turn to him again. You feel that disunity. And so Jesus, Jesus, the first amazing thing that we see is this perfect unity, this perfect obedience. And if you, and if you know yourself and you know how impossible it is for you to fully obey God the Father. If you, if you see how impossible that is for you to fully obey him, and you see that Jesus did it, it's enough to make you marvel, right? And yet, what does Jesus say? <laughs> now, that's nothing. Now, my unity with him... That's nothing. You will see things that are going to make you marvel, that are worth marveling at. It's not just perfect obedience. Jesus, verse 21, can raise people from the dead as the Father can. You got that? Jesus can raise people from the dead, just as the Father can. Now this includes two kinds of dead. Physically dead, as in when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out! Lazarus, who was dead, comes back to life. Because Jesus has the ability, as the Father to give dead people life. But it also includes spiritual death. Verse 
Which is easier to say? Live physically or live spiritually? Jesus asks a similar question when he says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? Now, which is actually easier? (laughs) It's easier to say the spiritual, right? But isn't it easier to do the physical? Can we make the dead live in either case? It's amazing. Now, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, it means that you're talking to people who cannot believe. Dead people cannot have life. They cannot have life without being miraculously given life. And so the the connection in your mind between raising Lazarus from the dead and raising you from spiritual death to spiritual life, those have to be parallel in your mind. The result of hearing Jesus... We see in verse 24 and 25, and they're the high point of our text. Both verses start with truly, truly. So he, he, he gets into that, listen to me, listen, pay attention to this. That's what that truly, truly communicates to the Jews anyway. We have to, we have to sort of enter into their mindset to, to figure out how he communicates to the Jews, but truly, truly, verse 24, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Do you see that spiritual life is the promise? Eternal life. Passing out of death into life. All on the basis of what? Hearing Jesus' word and believing. Believing who? Well, Jesus says, believing him who sent me. But of course, that is to believe who? Jesus. And so the result of being given that new life is believing. The 
the result of being given that new life is that we will not be condemned, that we won't be judged, that we're transferred from death to life. And then verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Is he talking about Lazarus? Is he talking about the, the few other people who were dead and he said live? Well, yes, he is. But that's not primarily what he's speaking of here. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Remember what I've, what I've been saying about the book of John. Every single chapter, believe, 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 it constantly is talking about what it means to believe, what true belief and false belief is. And then ending, you come near to the end of the book and he says, you know, I could write forever on this, but these things have been written so that you may believe and that believing you may have life in his name. We've got to keep John's goal in mind the whole time as we're reading this. And so when he reports the words of Jesus, truly I say to you, he who hears my word, or an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Right after he's gotten done talking about those who believe have eternal life, and those verses are back to back, and both of them start with truly, truly. This is why I say it's the high point of the text. What he's saying is, right now, time is coming, and now is. Right now, people are hearing, they're being given life, they're believing, and they were dead, but now they're alive. The dead people are hearing, spiritually dead. This is the good news. This is the good news. This is the gospel. That dead people can have life. And so, who are the dead people? When you're out and about, and you see the guy who has evil tattooed into his knuckles, what is that man? That man is hopeless. Right? And isn't that what you isn't isn't that what you think? Don't you judge people on this on this scale? You know, from like pretty good and likely to become a Christian and then like pretty bad and not likely to become a Christian and then the hopeless? 
He's worse than hopeless. He's dead. But the thing is, so is this person over here who you give, you give good chances for. Well, Doc, what are the prospects? Well, I'd say they're pretty good. Pretty good. He is dead, but I think it's going to turn out okay. No, there's no hope. It's hopeless. It's hopeless unless the dead can hear. And who can make the dead hear? Well, the only person who can make the dead hear is the one who has, been, who has life in himself, as Jesus says. I, like the Father, have life in myself. I'm not the creation. I have the ability to give life to the dead. Because I am life myself. Verse 26 is where we see that the Son and the Father exist without dependence on anything. And everything in creation that has life, all of the trees, all of the animals, all of the people, do we have life in ourselves? No, Colossians makes it clear. Chapter 1 and chapter 2. Read the, read the first couple chapters of Colossians, especially the end of chapter 1. What do we see? All things that came into being, that have come into being, came into being by him, and through him, and for him. And he holds them all together. And so when I say everything that has life, I'm talking about, you know, anything that's moving. Which is to say, the whole universe. The whole universe exists contingently. Contingent. It is it is only continuing to exist because Jesus wills it to continue to exist. Because the one who actually has life in himself gives life to the universe. If he stops giving, if he stops sustaining the universe by the word of his power, it all ceases then and there. But he is forever because he's not contingent. He has life in himself. This is how he can give life to the dead. And this is why it's not hopeless for either this person who you think has a pretty good chance at it, or this person over here who you shake your head and you walk away and say, yeah, never mind, it's pointless. Thankfully, it's not dependent on you, is it? Because you can't give life. You can't make the dead here. But Jesus can. And he says, the time is coming, and now is, when these things will happen. Verse 28, he says, Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which 
All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So why aren't we supposed to marvel? Well, because there's more amazing things to come. His signs will only continue to prove who he is. And isn't it interesting that the first sign that we see in our passage is the sign that Jesus understands the Sabbath better than the Jews do. Who could... Who could possibly understand the Sabbath better than the Jews do? Well, only the one who made the Sabbath. Do you believe that Jesus has life and gives life, is life? then none of those dead people out there are hopeless. That's why I say this is the good news. And then he has to come and say at the end, and everyone's going to be raised up, and they're all going to be judged, and the bad are going to be condemned. But... those who did the good deeds to be raised to a resurrection of life. And so we return once again to what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to obey. If you've been given life, you obey the one who gives you life. We always think that the gospel ends with that declaration of hope, and yet Jesus goes straight back into, and then there's going to be a resurrection, and there's going to be a judgment, and the people who did good deeds are going to get one thing, and the people who did bad deeds are going to get another. And it's like, wait a minute. You're giving me the... Aren't you taking away with one hand what you just gave me with the other? I say no, because... How are you able to do good deeds in the first place? Only by the power of the one who has life. Seek him. He's the one who gives you the ability to obey because he's the one who gives you the ability to live. And in the future, it will be that he gives the final proof of his claims by raising everybody and then by doing the judgment that the Father has given him to do.
And so when Jesus ends the passage, he returns to that first tent stake that he drove down deep. And he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So whose will do we seek? We seek God's. That's right. Not your own will. And how many of you have your own will in everything that goes on in life? You've got your idea of what you think should happen, don't you? Every last thing. And yet, what are you going to seek? Be, be united with God by seeking His will. He's the one who gives us life. He's the only one who can raise the dead. And then tell others. Because this news is quite the news. There's a judgment coming. And only those who hear and believe will have life in his name. Let's pray.